You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. So welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today's topic is gender parity and COVID-19, an Asian perspective. I'm very happy that I am joined today by three wonderful guests. I am joined by Mohammed Nasiri, by Lorena Yi, and Anu Madgavkar, the latter two both from McKinsey. Let me just start by uh, introducing Mohammed. Uh, Mohammed, you come from the UN Women, and you're the Regional Director for Asia and Pacific. Perhaps just uh, introduce UN Women to us. A very good day, Oliver. Good day uh, to everyone. UN Women is the youngest organization in the UN. It's an auspicious opportunity to, to be with, with McKinsey. But in short, what we try to do is four things. The first um, is that we work very closely with government and heads of states to change policies that are discriminatory of women and gender and put uh, more progressive laws to ensure gender diversity and access to both opportunities, but also to services. This is the first. The second, we do work on advocacy and norm change, uh, changing the culture and the mindset of all of us, where really patriarchal notions are still very much living in our minds. The third, uh, we try to give examples by what we do and what laws can change the lives of people by doing some programmatic work on the ground. And with that, it informs the policy work that we do, but also substantiate it. And finally, we do work uh, with the rest of the UN agencies to make sure that each of the agencies are really working on including uh, gender diversity and gender equality into their work. So this is basically what we do uh, across the globe. Thank you. And in addition to saying happy birthday, let me also just say thank you to you and you and women for doing what you are doing. This uh, could not be more important. Let me shift and ask Lorena Yi. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself, Lorena? It's wonderful to be here, Oliver. So I'm a senior partner in our San Francisco office, and I spend a lot of time serving clients in the technology sector. But most relevant to today's podcast, um, what I spend time on is I'm also our chief diversity and inclusion officer, which is about basically shining a light on ourselves and shining a light on the communities around us. Um, that's a simple version of what I do. And Oliver, if you're wondering um, or just to describe what McKinsey's commitment is, there are three things that we spend a lot of time on. One is working together with Anu and other colleagues around the world to invest in research and insights because we're nowhere near gender equality. We're nowhere near diversity and inclusion that we seek to be. So we need to understand it better. And we try and bring a global perspective and a data-backed perspective. The second thing we do is we turn that light right on ourselves. And that's the work you and I do, Oliver, to say, how do we think about gender parity and opportunity creation within McKinsey? And how do we get better? How do we stay on our toes on this one? And the last thing we do is we collaborate with organizations like UN Women, where we know that by arming ourselves together, 
we can come to some solutions and make a difference faster. Thank you, Lorena. And last but not least, Anu, you've been leading a lot of the research that we have done globally, but also in Asia. Would you mind just introducing yourself to the uh, to the audience? Uh, sure, Oliver. So I'm uh, Anu Madgavkar, and I'm uh, a partner with the McKinsey Global Institute, which is McKinsey's economics uh, and business research arm. I'm based in uh, Mumbai. And a large part of my work globally, as well as in Asia, is around topics of inequality and inclusive growth, with gender parity actually occupying center space with much of you know, the research that we've looked at. A variety of topics, including how economic parity is related to parity in society, uh, and how disruptive forces like technology are actually changing the parity landscape or likely to in many ways. All of these topics are more relevant than ever in the COVID context now. And I think what we do as a world and as a society now will have long-term implications for women. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Anu. And, and I suggest we start with you. Let's start the conversation. And let's start with you, Anu. Can you give a little bit of a, what's the snapshot? What is the state of play today when it comes to gender parity in Asia? So, uh, Oliver, I think, as we all know, Asia is not one region, right? And the two words that I like to use to describe Asia are really both diverse and dynamic. This is true in the context of gender parity as well. So if you look at Asia as a whole, and if you think about the overall workforce representation of women, not just in business roles or leadership roles, but in the economy overall, what we find is that for Asia, women account for about or produce and contribute around 36% of Asia's overall GDP. But this varies a lot by country. So this can be as high as 41% in China, which is actually well above the global average or slightly above the global average, but it could be lower in South Asia. So for example, in India, this number is closer to 20%. So there's a wide variation there. And similarly, if we look at you know, multiple indicators of gender parity in the economic space, where we look at labor force participation, but we also look at the kinds of roles and occupations that women have, whether they're represented in technical and professional roles, and also the equity or lack of equity in the way unpaid care work, which is all of the family caring responsibilities are distributed between men and women. So if we look at this at a broader level, and our research actually sort of created a scale, right, from one to 10 to say, how do countries really measure up on these broader dimensions of economic parity? And what we find, again, very interestingly, in Asia, there are countries which are at you know seven on a scale of one to ten, where ten represents complete parity. So the Philippines and Singapore are uh, you know very much at that end of the scale. But again, there are countries uh, you know there are countries in South Asia, and then there are countries in uh, you know South Korea or Japan where it's much more middling. So there is diversity there, but Asia is dynamic. There are the most fascinating and inspiring stories of progress made on labor force participation on you know, financial inclusion of women, uh, on women's entrepreneurship and wealth creation. So across each of these countries, some of the most dramatic shifts and improvements in women's uh, parity has also been evident. So there's a lot that Asia can gain. So let, let, me, let me just follow up there. Can I just ask, are we moving in the right direction in the last few years? So I think in some aspects we are. So for example, if you look at you know, the more... Uh, societal access to things like healthcare 
you know, financial inclusion and access to technology, Asia has made great strides across all countries. Uh, I think what's more muted and also a slightly more mixed pattern is the ability of women to actually step up in the workforce and have a higher share of the most productive roles. I think the issues of mid-career drop-offs in the talent pool of women, uh, the issues of not being really able to uh, take a much larger share of leadership roles, those issues, we are not really moving at the pace we should. And I think the root causes for those are, uh, they boil down to some very fundamental attitudes about women's roles outside of work as well. So it's a mixed picture, but yeah. Mohammed, what's your view on, on this, the state of current state of play, and are we making progress? Thank you, Oliver, and thank you, Anu, actually, because you did uh, say that Asia is few regions in one, which is very, very true. And somehow uh, we need to think and, and look into not doing comparisons between apples and oranges. But unfortunately, with all the good things that have been happening in Asia, it is still the only region that is either stagnating or decreasing in uh, when it comes to the women participation in the labor force. And that has been noticed over the past few years. Many reasons there, but as you rightly said, Anu, it is the cultural uh, norms and expectations from women, not only in Asia, it's, it's a global thing. And, and before we go online or live, Lorena was saying that she started her evening shift with her three kids and working in the morning and then having to attend to family uh, needs in, in the evening. And then it's a 24-hour job. That is unfortunately the norm of every single woman in the region. In some countries, women do uh, up to four times more than their male partners in the home. In other countries, it goes up to 11 times more. And we cannot expect that women are going to be participating with the same energy, with the same determination in the labor force if we're not going to create an ecosystem that would allow that in a more uh, equitable way. Before I, I go back to you, uh, Oliver, I, I would also like to think out loud with you and, and with the audience today. I think it's very, very important to think about women's participation and the gender parity between the binaries, but it's also equally important that we start taking this conversation into diversity and inclusion. And that is across the full spectrum of gender diversity, but also across race, color, ethnicity, disability. Unfortunately, we have been having discussions in a siloed piecemeal fashion over the past few decades. Exactly. You're saying this is actually about equality and inclusion as opposed to only gender parity. Absolutely. And Lorena, that is exactly what you lead in McKinsey. Uh, would you care to comment on that, please? Well, that and my double shift, but putting the double shift aside, <laughs> which we can actually come back to because I think there's a, a pretty a more serious tone rather than the comical tone. So we'll come back to that one. But I think on the point, I completely agree with you on the point of diversity. And Oliver, I know we share a lot of passion about this. So we think about diversity. That's the representation. Um, that's just if we can count, are there more people with different colors, with different orientations, with maybe different cognitive capabilities? Do we have difference around? That's the first step. Inclusion is, did you put people of diverse backgrounds at the table? Secondly, do they feel they can contribute? That's when you're included. But the better piece 
is do you feel you belong? And when you feel you belong, you feel that you are part of that table. You are part of that leadership team. You are part of the collaboration that produces the product, the service, the idea. And what we lack is all three of those pieces. We are underrepresented in terms of different types of diversity. We are, whether it's gender, whether in the United States, we think about the representation of Black professionals in the business setting, whether it's, we think about LGBTQ. So, and there are many ways that we're sorely lacking in representation, but I think you have to actually ask what you're, what you are going to, which is why, why is the culture one that we don't see these benefits. And one of the really interesting things is that I do find in a lot of conversations, and Mohammed and Anu, I know you probably experienced this too, you go back to the most fundamental business case. And to me, there are a couple pieces to it. There is the performance benefit and there's the talent benefit. And from a performance benefit, if we just look at the corporate sector for a second, we know that companies with diverse management teams globally, this is a global statistic, perform at 36% higher return on equity. And I think when we put the economic and health crisis into context, it'd be hard to say that you'd be a leadership team that wants to turn away from that right now, or really ever. And then the second piece is around talent. And one of the things that we saw in our research in the United States, um, and I'll just make a slight research assumption that that applies in Asia, so just suspend disbelief for a second. But one of the things we found is that employees, both men and women, if they felt and perceived that they worked in a fair workplace, they were three times more likely to stay and three times more likely to be happy. So even before you get to social justice and maybe how you feel emotionally about this, it is actually a total net benefit for an organization to have diverse voices, both at the decision-making table and in the population at large, if you think about talent retention. And so I do think there's a bit of zooming back to that's why. And then it comes to where you were going, which is what would we do to create the type of equality, to create the type of equity and inclusion that we so surely need? Indeed. And we are going to come back to that. What will it take? Before we go there, can we just zoom into the current? We're in the middle of a COVID-19 crisis. How is that impacting women and gender parity? It's impacting women uh, in a very significant way, Oliver, I think is the short answer. And that's both at the level of the humanitarian and health-related concerns and risks, which of course do impact women as, you know, Householders, parents, and of course, all of the health worker segment, right, which is relatively more dominated by women workers. But even from an economic standpoint, there is, of course, an overall reduction in employment, GDP, aggregate demand, and those impacts are huge. But what is really interesting and yet disturbing is that the data that we're seeing in a few countries, and we've looked at this for the US and India most recently. But what we find is that there is a 40 to 50% higher propensity for a woman to actually lose her employment, even in the current data and statistics around how unemployment is hitting workforces in these two countries. And that's partly because, you know, women are sometimes concentrated in sectors more vulnerable to job loss in the COVID scenario, which is things like accommodation, food services, retail, right? So that's like because of the sectors they're employed in. But it's also, of course, the fact that there are other, you know, non-purely non, uh, economic uh, considerations that kick in. Uh, the most important of these is 
just the burden of caring for the family, which has risen a lot with COVID, with children at home and, you know, the difficulty of getting help to actually, you know, do all the stuff that living living is about, which is the cooking and the cleaning and the supervision of children and so forth. And that load of work has disproportionately fallen on women, which means more women have found that they just can't cope and they uh, opt out. And then, of course, there are a whole set of other complications and biases. And evidence does show that it is easier to actually fire a woman and harder for a woman to actually get rehired for a whole bunch of other reasons, which are to do with softer biases. And Anu, maybe I so agree with what you're saying. Maybe just to take that as an example, one you and I have worked on, um, the, we have the conditions for the perfect storm here. And by the way, the storm started before COVID. So if you were looking at this uh, in January, one of the things that we have all been talking about is how automation will disrupt fundamentally the jobs and that that is a huge reskilling challenge, something we've talked a lot about. Let's take your example of the retail sector. Let's just say that there is a woman um, in the retail sector in Asia. She was already, maybe she's uh, what we now call frontline worker. She's a retail worker. That profession is highly dominated by women, just like construction work tends to be more men, but not exclusively so. That industry was already being fundamentally reshaped by automation and technology for which you may need less storefronts, for which you may automate the work that's done in the store to connect to customers. All of that was already happening. She was already trying to reskill. Um, and so then COVID hits. And all of those retail shops shut down, they furlough, they may have uneven benefits. We actually haven't thought about the way in which we think through those benefits. So it's been very uneven. Some places have provided extra insurance, some places didn't, you know, all kinds of things. So you have that. And then I think you kind of take a step in her shoes. She may have as much as maybe high school education. She's trying to invest in her education, but guess what? She goes home and she takes her second shift of unpaid work, the care, the cooking, the cleaning, and the retraining and the self-education is out of your cell phone, your mobile phone. But by the way, she may be in a family where there's only one or two technology devices. And we know in Asia in particular, those tend to go to men first. So she doesn't really have access to either go to a school um, or take kind of an online class. So you start to see, you know, if just to bring what you're saying down to like the individual experience, you start to say she did all the right things leading up to the point to which her sector her job was disintermediated, you have COVID, you have a double shift in terms of the structure and expectations. And it's actually hard to get access to the economic resources and opportunities that bring you back to the workforce. And we have seen it in a kind of implicit bias and unconscious consequence that every time we've seen a major recession, women's jobs have been more vulnerable and have come back more slowly. And so I think there is it's not any one thing. It is that perfect storm of many factors, which mean that it's not surprising when, Anu, you say that in India and the U.S., for example, 40% higher propensity to lose their job. And that's a shocking statistic. But when I think about that retail worker in the journey, it's not so shocking. This is a shocking, shocking statistic and a perfect storm. You know, this is a bad cycle. Mohammed, I don't know if you've looked at how do we break out of this cycle? 
As you rightly said, Lorena, and as you rightly said, Oliver, COVID has only been the accelerator and amplifier of, of discrimination. And it has framed it squarely in, in our faces, probably as uh, nothing uh, ever before. And, and on, on one hand, in a very twisted way, I think it is a good thing because it has been tabling the issue like never before in every fora. And this is a, a good starter because it is uh, where we need to go when it comes to political will to change things, but also pushing the different constituencies to take action. So it's not only the responsibility of the member states uh, or the UN or the civil society, but w one of the major partners in this is definitely the private and the corporate sector. Um, and the entry point is what you said, Lorena, it's not only the right thing to do, it is also the, the smart thing to do. If you want to thrive, if you want, not even, we're not even at the thriving moment now. If you want to survive, it's an act of survival that you need to be inclusive and you need to be diverse and you need to bring women and other gender and diverse groups on board because those are going to be formulating decisions and actions that are going to be suited to a whole of a society. So this is a, a one on the larger picture, Oliver. But if we are going to, to look into businesses, I think we need to look into four processes where we need to be more inclusive. First, when we start with the recruitment, in the recruitment, and we need really to go beyond the tokenism, because as you rightly said, Lorena, it, you need to feel that you belong. So it's not only just ticking the box that my color is not white or I do belong to a, a, a different ethnic group. The retention, and, and the retention here is about creating an ecosystem that would make those who come into the space do not leave it because they have to go back home to another shift or because their male partners, if they are in a heterosexual relationship, earn more or because their access to opportunities and facilities are not there, including childcare facilities, for example. The third is the progression within the business, because we need to include opportunities that are tailored to the different diverse groups. Not all opportunities for progression can suit everyone equally. And finally is the talent management. And this is where different groups uh, need to be looked at and we need to utilize and manage talent beyond necessarily their terms of reference in every business to maximize the utilization of the opportunity and the return. And if that means that we need to take temporary special measures, maybe on a temporary basis to make, in, to make sure that we do raise the, the numbers of those who are under underrepresented. We need to go beyond the numbers, as you rightly said, Lorena. We need to look into the culture. And the culture is very patriarchal in every space we occupy. And we need to work on norm change. Yes, we are looking for immediate and quick fixes, and we need to continue looking into that. But in parallel, we really need to work on a longer term uh, change of norms. And with this, we will not make any dent if we're not going to attend to four issues. Education, media, cultural norms, 
and religious interpretations of what equality means. And we really need to tackle all these. Until now, uh, on all these pillars, there's a huge tilting towards a patriarchal space there. I, I just wanted to pick up uh, on, on the cultural dimension that Mohammed underscored uh, as being so important, and I completely agree. Um, you know, when we looked at survey data, there is something called the World Value Survey, and they actually assess how uh, both men and women think and feel about really fundamental topics and questions. And the one thing that leaps out is this question that says, or a statement that says, you know, when women work for pay, their children suffer. And the survey asks respondents whether they agree or not. Uh, and it's striking not only that, for example, in Asia, nearly half of all respondents actually agree with that statement. Uh, but it's also striking that when, you know, in a, in a, in a whole set of discussions with women cutting across educational levels, even at the top of their profession, even for me personally over the years, when I reflect on you know, my children and my work, this sort of thought does bubble up and you do wonder whether there is a trade-off and whether you have obligations that are different because you're a woman. Uh, and therefore, all of these levers, right, that Mohammed talked about, the media or government action or things that companies can do to really surface that very fundamental set of beliefs, patriarchal beliefs, if you will, about what women should do and what men should do, I think is absolutely critical. Well, Anu, I mean, I, I would even put a stronger statement on that um, because we need to think through how we can expand the horizons of our younger, our younger future leaders, our kids. Because there's a, a, a short little phrase, um, somebody gave me this little um, piece of little plaque to put in my office. And it says, if she can see it, she can be it. And you say, oh my gosh, that's like a Hallmark card or something like that, you know, like as a greeting card. But I think it's so simple, but it's true. If all she sees, if all little girls see are women in unpaid care, they do not realize that they can be excellent mothers. And that is super valuable, but that there are also options to be the CEO of a company or that you can be a great mother and a CEO or an executive or a teacher, or a healthcare professional, many, many, many things. And so I think the challenge is our young women and girls don't see enough role models of the diversity of types of futures they can have. And if they can't see it, it's hard to believe and it's hard to trailblaze all on your own. I mean, certainly they can do that, but it would be great if they, if they could see that diversity. And just one thing on the media, um, this is a U.S. statistic, but it may be quite interesting to, for viewers in Asia, which is that um, one of the Hollywood actors and uh, her research team counted in movies the percentage of roles to which women appeared, thinking that Hollywood movies really affect this small phrase I said, if she can see it, she can be it. And they looked at background roles because clearly for like leading roles, it was clear that wasn't going to have any gender parity. And so they're looking at background roles, like the things you see in the movie, like firefighters, policemen, teachers, um, receptionists, all the background roles to create a scene. And they found 17% women were represented a few years ago in Hollywood films in the background. So if I'm a young girl and I look at the movies 
and I only see 17%. Is it surprising? <laughs> you know, I don't imagine I could be a scientist. I don't imagine I could, you know, be a nurse. I mean, I just, I don't even see myself represented in, in the way in which society um, reflects back to to our youth. And, and so I just think it, it, to this culture point, Mohan and Ani, like there is a bigger piece here. Now the solutions are not easy. Um, so I, I don't have any silver bullet on it, but just acknowledging it's a really big challenge. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. But I do want to shift us into the solutions. I know this is not easy. So let's start digging a little bit further into that. And I, I think, you know, Mohammed, you teed up a few when it comes to, you know, the companies. But even before we get there, let's talk about the culture, which is a broader societal culture uh, issue that we have. So you mentioned education, media, cultural norms, uh, religious interpretation. So let, let's. What are some of the solutions that you see to the cultural part of this? Some uh, are, are easy fixes, Oliver. Uh, looking into the education curriculum, you don't need to have any more examples that says my father goes to the field to work, my mother stays at home to cook, because you do find these sentences in education curriculum across the region, across the globe. And as you rightly said, Lorena, if you have a new, uh, you're, you're a five or a six year older, a boy or a girl, reading these sentences, then you will grow up with these power dynamics and uh, uh, stereotypical roles in mind. So those can be easy fixes in education curriculum. And the tricky part there, Oliver, is that when we did work and we are still working with the political levels of government, including ministers of education, you do find unequivocally the political will to change things. It's only when this trickles down to those who are sitting and writing the curriculum themselves that you hit a wall. So this is one. The other is a, a more aware and a more responsible media uh, that, that is looking into the diversification of roles, not boxing women as the victim or the Cinderella or the Snow White who's waiting for Prince Charming to come on a white horse. But these narratives need to change. And, and we've seen over the past few years some good attempts where Disney and, and the likes are, are taking conscious decisions to, to look into that, where the cultural norms and the cultural spaces, including pop culture... Barbie doesn't have to be uh, blonde and blue-eyed. It, it can be of uh, Asian uh, origin or it can be a, a black person. So the religious interpretations, and that's something that I've worked on a lot when I was in the Middle East and North Africa, is that we really need to separate what is religious and what is traditional. And one specific example about the Islamic faith that I belong to and I worked on for some time, they do give value to unpaid care work. And they, the text goes as follows. If the woman chooses not to be active outside the household, she does have the, the right to be financially remunerated for what she does inside the house from 
all the chores, including breastfeeding her own kids if she wishes. But if she decides to forego that right, it's an act of compassion from her own and to bring the family together. So the right was there, but it's been always neglected because those pen holders on the uh, religious text are men. So th these are some of the things that we can look at and, and revisit with a fresh eye, with a more inclusive approach. And Anu, you have looked at this across Asia. So uh, expand a little bit on this, please. You know, thank you, Mohammed, for bringing us this amazing insight about how, you know, the religious texts value unpaid care work. We've looked at it in the modern context. And if you applied a similar principle and actually did a fair value of the value of the work itself, we find that across Asia, this could be a, a three and a half to four trillion economy. The care economy is actually huge. Uh, and there is actually a huge opportunity for a public-private sort of approach, you know, with the governments across countries recognizing that building the care economy is a public good because like other forms of infrastructure, it actually enables women to come into the workforce. And private organizations seeing this as an opportunity to really create a whole new professional services industry with all the good aspects of training and certification and reliability uh, that, that one should expect from work of this importance, right? So a collaboration with public funding, private innovation to really create this care economy could not only enable many more women to come into work, but also actually create jobs uh, for both men and women, but predominantly for women in this, in this care economy. And just to put that in context, you said three and a half to four trillion. That That is significantly bigger than the size of the economy of India today or the size of ASEAN economy today. So these are huge numbers that you're pointing to, uh, Anu. Thank you for that. I want to zoom in on what companies could do, what companies could do, what the leaders in those companies should do. I think, Mohammed, you talked earlier about recruitment, retention, progression talent management. I know, Lorena, you do a lot of work on this with clients and in the firm too. So what are the things that you see that companies need to do? Many things. Uh, but to start, <laughs> is, is laughing on mute when I said many things because it's a very truthful answer. One thing I think that's important to recognize is the role of business has shifted. You know, a decade ago, two decades ago, uh, you could have said that the contribution, uh, the most meaningful way to contribute to the economic parity of women in society is to use your CSR funding, your philanthropic dollar, and, and to use it in a really thoughtful way. And I think companies did an amazing job with this. And there's some amazing impact stories. But I think we live in a different time where if you think of something called stakeholder capitalism or sometimes we call it 21st century company, the role of companies has shifted. So the bottom line on that is that it's not optional to be a leader and a player in creating more social and economic justice. It is actually a requirement. And so let me break that down into what that has meant during COVID for some companies acting this way. So for example, and this is a US example where we don't have uh, in the United States necessarily um, regulation or norms around childcare. Several companies paid additional for childcare 
um, stipends and reimbursements or, or types of benefits. Several companies extended healthcare insurance for furloughed employees without actually waiting for the government to ask them to do so. Several companies um, actually have thought through, even before COVID, raising minimum wage. And so some of that is actually across everyone benefits. But thinking through that role, um, I talked to a company that said that they had a small little technique, which is they had so many high population of single working parents or mothers in particular during COVID, they had a high concentration, plus many of them had children under 10, that they created a code that you could put in your calendar that was time that you needed to spend because you had to take care of your kids. And that basically bounced back that you were not available. So from everything from small tactics to larger policy changes, during COVID, we've seen a lot of creativity about how companies have stepped in to support women and to take into consideration the, the, to the context, as opposed to waiting necessarily for um, government policy to, to think through. There just isn't enough time. COVID hit so quickly that even though there could have been some great policies issued, there just wasn't time to wait for that. The time was to actually take practical action. So I do think that's a huge role of business. And then I think the tactical work beyond COVID is to take a look at how we have fundamentally changed and re-architected how we work. Access to technology has um, accelerated. The ways in which we can work from home, work from work, or even how we construct those jobs has changed. And so for many people, and for women in particular, this flexibility could be a huge benefit. It doesn't probably feel like that for people like myself who are still shelter in, in their respective cities. But as we get past COVID's extreme health crisis. There can be some really interesting opportunities. And I think companies have to be on the forefront of redefining some of those benefits and standards in a way that help women. If you allow me, Oliver, just to, to share some reflections on, on what you said, uh, Lorena, which is very, very uh, valid. Uh, but I would like to, to underline one word that you have mentioned uh, more than once. It's several companies, several, not many. And a recent research that we've done here uh, and a survey that we've done with 65 CEOs of private sector companies here in the region, asking them a simple question, do you think COVID will impact on women? Most of them said yes. But when we dug deeper to see what type of action have they taken, it's only 29% of them who have taken action on that. This is something that we need to be very aware of. When we see mad men uh, in the 50, 70 years ago, we do see that the corporate sector was designed around the white man. Uh, and, and it served the white man and it moved from the, the global north to the global south with the same kind of setup. So uh, if you have access to education grant, it only kicks in when the child is at school, it starts school, because they are taking for granted that there is a woman sitting back home for the first five years taking care of the child without any kind of support. When you have a paternity leave, it's only for women, and when would take maybe two weeks, and it's culturally frowned upon, oh, are you going to take a leave now and, and stay with your kids? That's, uh, that is not very manly. The competencies required to join multinationals are, are very much based on the Western education. And as you rightly said, Lorena, the, the, the flexible work arrangements are, are only serving the, the elite of us who have the capacity and the affordability to uh, make sure that all other things at home are being taken care 
care of by others or the burden is being shared by the partner. One of the major issues that we maybe need to think about is redefining what workspace means because this has direct relation to what companies are putting in place when it comes to anti-harassment policies, anti-violence policies, because if you have your own staff member working from her home or his home or their home and being subjected to violence and harassment and bullying, etc., what action are you going to take? And these are kinds of, the kinds of questions that we need to ask ourselves and, and we need to put out there collectively to think about. But Mohammed, the 26%, just, um, just to push on that for one second. So I am generally an optimist. So 26% is a critical mass that can be a tipping point. It is definitely not pervasive. It is definitely not enough. But if we get a critical mass of leadership that starts walking, talking, acting differently, others will follow because the path to 100%, you know, I have to hit 20, 30, 40. And so I do think there's something optimistic. The other thing I think about what you said, and, and Oliver, I know you have a comment, is that I do think that for corporations, the complexity of what you have to think through, just the list you just gave, is is hugely different. And we have to be pretty courageous to take some of that head on um, because you can't just say, well, what's in the work is in the work. Um, and the last thing is, I do think there's been some really interesting innovation in different types of jobs. In particular, we've seen some pretty interesting accelerations of work from home for call center workers, for example. So do you think we have to force ourselves Yes, it is easier if you're an elite professional, but I don't think COVID has only accelerated technology empowerment for those jobs. Um, at least I really hope it hasn't just been contained to that. Listen, I'm going to start wrapping us up in, in a couple of minutes. But before we do, what we have not talked uh, much about women and leadership or women leaders. Uh, that's a topic uh, we focus on many other things. But let's talk a little bit about Right now, the representation in the funnel, as we know, is significantly too low at the C-suite. What are some of the things that companies should do to increase women representation all the way through the funnel and all the way to the top of the house, so to speak? Anu? I think it goes back to, first and foremost, a very strong commitment from leaders at the top to say that this is not a sign of a healthy organization uh, or a high-performing one indeed. And therefore, this is something we want to change. So commitment from CEOs is, I think we have the evidence to say that that accompanied by, you know, all those signals getting picked up and then translated into real processes down the line is a crucial uh, prerequisite. I think on top of that, to really think about a couple of core processes, uh, one is really around sponsorship and opportunity creation. Because a lot of companies have the issue that at the, at the beginning of the funnel, that there is reasonably good you know, female representation, but then there is a lot of mid-career either plateauing or drop-off, right? So how do you create the most exciting opportunities for women you know, in equal numbers at the right points in their career to make sure that they have the opportunity to advance and they have you know, people that they can work with, leaders that they can work with who can help them right in that. So that's one. The second thing is, I think, to systematically de-bias a whole lot of processes around, you know, recruitment, of course, but also evaluation and promotion and all of those things. So there, there's a lot more, as Larina said, many, many things. And maybe I hand over to her to talk a bit more about some of them. 
Well, I agree. It stops starts with leadership commitment and we don't have enough of it. So I, I completely agree with your list. I also just think that in a world where we have to rethink almost everything with COVID, we just need to be a lot bolder in the solution set. Um, so in some ways, I think companies have been constrained to a certain set of actions. And I, I do think we have to start saying, if you were to reimagine, and if you were to almost take the COVID example, if you could, instead of taking 10 years, how much progress would we make in a year? And then say, what would that lead us to do? But to Mohammed's piece, um, any type of corporate action has to take into consideration culture. Um, so um, that's going to be a big piece that we have to look at together. It's important as well to ask ourselves, Oliver, before we, we see how are we going to address that, is where do uh, uh, women and other genders sit in the C-suite? Is it the director of research or the director of gender inclusion and diversity? Or is it the heart, what, what the businesses see as the hardcore, the director of sales, director of marketing, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very important that we move beyond tokenism there and, and make it more inclusive. It's very interesting. In our cases, the UN, we've been pushing for gender parity and then we did pride ourselves in September 2018 by saying, oh, all the senior heads of UN agencies now uh, at, are at parity level, 50-50, 50%-50%. But when you dig deeper, it's the men in the organization who hold 92% of the financial power of the organization as the UN. So the other 50% of women who are holding offices at the, the head of agency are heading smaller agencies with less power. So we need to think about that. Um, but but when, when we ensure that they go to the C-suite, we need to focus on the progression there. So uh, yes to recruitment, yes to retention, but more on the progression. And with the progression, as you rightly said, Anu, you need to have an executive uh, will to push for a certain group of people, whether it was women or, or other genders or other minority groups, but also to create an ecosystem and an organization that facilitates that. Whether you are ensuring that there are uh, care facilities for children, whether you are ensuring that there are enough days for uh, maternal leave, whether you are ensuring that you have the systems that would allow for flexible working modalities for all, not only for the privileged ones. It is only then when women and others can progress and make it up to the, to the senior level. Thank you. Listen, I'm going to ask each of you two rapid fire questions to wrap up this uh, podcast. The first question is, is a simple one. If you look now where we are today and into the future, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? And why? Who wants to go first? Mohammed? An optimist, of course. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been here. And why? Because it makes sense. And it is our only way to continue to exist as a human race. Otherwise, we're going to be distinct. Anu? An optimist, of course. Uh, and I do think periods of you know, dramatic disruption uh, and suffering can also be periods from which uh, eventually you know, innovation and good can come out. Uh, and therefore, I'm hoping that through this period, models like Flex, like work from home, actually become 
uh, you know, much more viable for everybody and enable much more participation. Lorena. Raging optimist. <laughs> Look, I think I'm optimistic because in addition to what Mohammed and Anis said, I, I do have a irrational faith or rational faith that institutions are self-correcting and have the capacity to change and that as leaders, our responsibility is to be part of those institutions to navigate the change. Thank you each. Now, final question for you. What is the the one piece of advice or suggestion you have for a CEO of a company? And you are not allowed to agree with or say the same thing as the, the last person. So it has to be something new and fresh. Again, why don't we go in the same order? Uh, Mohammed, you go first. There is a Chinese proverb that always uh, that says, uh, look within. So it's important that you start by your own self as a CEO, reflect, take stock of your own biases and see where you want to change. So start with yourself. For me, it would be have the courage to challenge orthodox beliefs and break some glass because you may be underestimating how ready the world is, particularly younger folk that you want to appeal to as employees or customers uh, and their readiness to change. You may be underestimating that. 50% diverse management leadership. A CEO can, over time, change his management team to be 50% diverse across gender, religion, race, sexual orientation, many different dimensions. You can build a diverse leadership team. I've seen it. It doesn't happen overnight, but the impact that has is huge on the organization. Thank you. Listen, let me just say a huge thank you to each one of you. You've been a wonderful team of guests. I really, really appreciate that. Let me just end by saying, listen, 50% of the world's talent, of the world's leadership potentials happen to be women. You know, this it goes without saying why this is a number one priority. And to repeat Anu's words, we're living in a period of disruption. Let's be willing to break some glass to move this forward. So I hope everybody out there takes that as a, a bit of a wake-up call to all of us to look within ourselves and simply get on with this. Thank you, everyone. And thank you to the panelists again. And thank you all for listening. Take care. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash future of Asia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.